Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Opposing Points. My guest today is Adam Coleman, the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, op-ed writer, public speaker, host of A Good Faith Space on Twitter Spaces, and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. In this episode, we discuss his recent article on fatherlessness and how it's an overlooked factor when it comes to school shootings. We talk about the impact of broken families on boys and girls, toxic masculinity, social media, dating and hookup culture, raising children, and solutions to the issue of fatherless families. We also talk a little bit about his own upbringing and how it informs his opinions and perspectives. I hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam. Hey, Adam, welcome to Opposing Points. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so before we get started, just uh, a little bit of a, a background of yourself, if you could provide that for everybody. Sure. So um, I usually say that I'm just an average American. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I guess it's been a couple of years now, I decided to one day sit down and start writing a book. Um, after the death of George Floyd, about a couple months afterwards, mm -hmm. um, just expressing my viewpoints on not necessarily George Floyd, but my thoughts on race and my thoughts on culture uh, within America. Um, and while doing so, telling my personal story. Um, so my book, Black Victim, Black Victor, um, is a mixture of an autobiography while giving social commentary. Um, to help people understand my perspective as far as where I'm coming from. Um, and so, yeah, I, before the book, I, I didn't have any public profile whatsoever. I kept everything to myself. I kept private. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just, I'm just a, a kind of a culture war junkie. Um, and I was, I was already interested in politics, um, but even more so interested in culture and human behavior and psychology. So there's a little bit of that as well. A, a quite a bit of it in the book as well, um, from a you know behavioral standpoint, um, childhood um, childhood development standpoint, and uh, I had a little bit of validation because I'm not a I'm not a expert per se, mm -hmm. um, but I had some psychologists actually read the book and validate that you know yeah you're on point with your analysis of what you're saying. So um, that was always great to hear that you know, just how I'm analyzing it is on point of how I'm, I'm, I'm from like the professional standpoint and, and just how I'm seeing the world. So much of the things that we talk about race and, and people, you know, I, I see it almost like in a psychological lens, a developmental lens. So it was, uh, was your website wrongthink.net, was that something that came along after the book as well? Or was it simultaneous or was it before? Uh, actually, wrong speak. Wrong speak. Yes. Wrong speak. That net. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's okay. It's, it's on the same, same way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, actually I started writing the book first, but I, okay. I, as I was writing, I started wrong speak, um, mainly for myself. Um, because as the book is sending around race and, and my personal story and stuff like that, there were times that I wanted to just like write about something else and mm -hmm. have like a kind of like an outlet to discuss certain things. So initially it was just me 
blogging about whatever. Mm-hmm. But then as time went on, I realized what the bigger purpose was. And the bigger purpose is to encourage writing from other people. And so today, um, I really don't write much on there. It's people who are willingly submitting. Um, I do have a, a few people who write for me regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm, I'm encouraging people uh, who aren't even writers per se, but maybe they work in a particular field that I think people should hear about and they have a viewpoint. So I encourage them, uh, even sometimes anonymously, to write something and I do my best to circulate it. Um, so in many ways, Wrong Speak is kind of a, uh, the website as far as the blogging aspect, is kind of a passion project mm-hmm. to encourage people to write openly um, and, and advocate for people to, to write, to express themselves. Yeah. I think that's super important, especially as kind of platforms move away from just being able to write about stuff like that. Um, and you talk about, uh, George Floyd, uh, that moment I think was a racial reckoning across the United States and maybe, and and globally for sure. Um, (laughs) did you have a a changed perspective when that happened? Did you have a a perspective that it validated um, actually, that's the interesting thing. Uh, my viewpoint on race hasn't really changed throughout my entire life. Um, I've learned very early on that people are flawed um, and there are bad people of all colors. And so I always treated people accordingly. If they were nice to me, I was nice to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they treated me with respect, I treated them with respect. You know, basically treat people like how you want to be treated. Um, and I try to have good faith in people until they show otherwise. Right. So as far as how does race come into that? I mean, obviously racism is bad, but racism is hatred. It, you know, it's just a form of it. Uh, you, can, you can be a classist, you can be an elitist, uh, you can be all different types of is, and they take on aspects of hate. And to me, that's ultimately what it boils down to. Um, it's just hate. So, you know, in regards to George Floyd, you know, it's a, it's a terrible situation. You know, I, at no point do I say like he deserved it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a terrible situation. My issue is more so with the narratives that came from it, that what happens to George Floyd happens all the time or happens daily or, you know, what George, George Floyd went through is the, it's the average life of a black man having to be worried about a knee on his neck. You know, it, it's the, I like to call it the horror stories. And I started also realizing outside of George Floyd race, but even like relationships and stuff like that, there's a lot of fear surrounding certain narratives and there's a lot of horror stories that people rely on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not to, go too far off but like marriage a lot of people are fearful of marriage why well because they hear the horror stories right yeah so, that's not too far off from where i'll take the i'd like to take the discussion definitely <laughs> yeah but it's the it's the horror stories that are manipulative in many ways and so when it comes to race i started seeing how even more so i always kind of saw it but i started seeing how it was just perfectly fine that the horror story is absolutely true. And everybody almost overnight accepted the horror story as the reality. Um, and, and that was the 
the point that I wanted to start first, like asking, am I the only one who sees what I'm seeing? So instead of like going on Facebook because it was a cesspool of just emotional mm-hmm. turmoil for people who are nowhere near Minnesota, <laughs> you know, um, I went elsewhere, I looked for free speech platforms and I just started talking to people and I just started asking people, am I the only one who feels this particular way? And am I, is it irrational for me to not be so emotionally set on this particular situation? Not that I'm a cold hearted person, but just that I recognize that this is a bad event, but I also recognize bad things happen all over the place. Is it, is it an exaggeration to make George Floyd's situation appear to be something that's so commonplace? Something that, you know, I've lived all, most people can't say they've lived in multiple states, um, or, but I'm able to say that. I've lived in five states. I've lived in multiple areas in five states. I've lived in suburban areas. I've lived in rural areas. I've been one of four black kids in the entire school. Mm-hmm. That's been my reality many of times. I never experienced anything of that particular nature. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Obviously, George Floyd happened. But the narrative that it's, in, uh, it's endemic, it's always happening, which I think is ridiculous, especially from the fact that if the fears of white people, most black people don't live around white people, they live amongst each other. They live in urban areas. Um, they live in very particular areas. I believe it, I looked it up, it was um, somewhere around like 62 to 65% of black Americans live in 10 states. And I, I'm willing to bet if you started naming cities, you could name the 10 states. Mm-hmm. We're, we're a small population of people within this country that live in very particular areas. If they have legit issues with the police, that is a local matter, right? So if you live in, let's say for example, if you live in Atlanta and you're having an issue with the Atlanta Police Department, that's not a Georgia issue, that's an Atlanta issue. Right. Same thing goes for Minneapolis and Minnesota. And there, there may be legit things that are happening within Minnesota that people have the gripe about. Mm-hmm. So this is this is another issue of taking a local story, making it a national story, and making that outcome within that local area as being the national outcome. And I know as someone who's lived in multiple areas, that rural problems are not urban problems. Mm-hmm. You know, there it's a completely different life. And our country is probably predominantly, I would say, yeah, it's not far fetched to say predominantly rural. Mm-hmm. It's and so, a totally different lifestyle there. It's, it's a completely different lifestyle. So that's why, and even just to add on top of that, I've traveled outside this country. Mm-hmm. And when you start traveling outside the country, you also start realizing how big America is. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you don't conceptualize it. But America has just about every climate that you can think of. And every different demographic that you can think of. Not every country can say that. We're extremely multicultural, extremely vast, different climates, different economies, um, dialects, you name it. We're a huge country. And for, for the media to basically pretend that America is New York and Washington, DC. And California. <laughs> you know, in California, just, it just erases how, how it erases the perspective of what America is. Um, 
and how certain problems and many problems are local problems. Yeah, the, the thing that struck me also was um, if, if, if you ask the average person, you know, have you heard of Tony Timpa or, or Daniel Shaver? They've never heard about them. Um, and I was, I, I, it, the thought came to me, um, like I think the other night that during the civil rights movement, there was none of this like, you know, white people um, don't sit down at these things or get in the front and, and you know, protect from, from police, uh, take, take the hits. It was a very united um, movement among racists. Um, and, and today there's like sort of a division in, in the movement where you have, you have white people, but they're, I, I don't know, it's, it doesn't kind of feel the same way um, in the way that it manifests. I think that in, in many ways in some of the areas, um, I actually use an example out, out in Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, I was talking to this one guy who, it, it was a whole legal matter he got in sort of trouble with um, unfairly, but he was criticizing the local NAACP because it's being ran by white people. <laughs> now, it's, he, he was telling me, it's literally everybody who's part of this local NAACP chapter is white. And they're telling him that he can't. Is it Rachel Dolezal? <laughs> <laughs> Not even. Um, so that to him was was funny, and and he was he was using that as kind of like, what are you guys actually doing over there, and how are you actually are you listening to anybody, or are you pushing your particular agenda? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. It, I don't know who's leading who. You know, it's, I don't think there's one particular charge. I think it depends what you're talking about, what organization, um, what's the narrative, you know, all these different things. But I don't know, there's certain situations where it does seem like it is white progressive led. And there's other situations where it doesn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it just really depends. Interesting. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to get into the, the article that you wrote for the, for the post, um, but I think it's, it's broader. So, so I, I feel like it can cover, you know, uh, not having a father um, relationships when you're, you know, like you were talking about earlier marriage. I feel like it's a really broad spectrum of, of things that relate. Um, so you, you wrote this article um, about how we don't look at the lack of uh, fathers in some of these recent uh, school shooting perpetrators. Um, and I think I saw a statistic that 75% of recent school shooters uh, don't have uh, fathers. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't shock me. Um, but one of the things that I, I want to know is, is what kind of prompted you to think about this? Um, and uh, we can, we can go from there. Um. You know, the, the basis of my book is about family. Um, the early chapters are probably the most important chapters are talking about family. It's talking about my childhood, not growing up with my father um, and how it impacted me and the struggles that I had um, as a young man and growing into being an adult and not knowing how to be a man, mm -hmm. and what that actually entails. Um, you know, I'm in my late thirties now and it took me a long time to 
to figure out who I am and what I'm, what I'm actually trying to do. And, and also on top of that, being a young father, you know, having my son at the age of 21, while not knowing how to be a father, uh, you know, the only thing I knew was not to be my father. So uh, my son is 16 today and, you know, we have a really good relationship, um, open communication. I tell him he can tell me anything, no judgment from me. Uh, if he's having a problem, we figure it out together. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> I will say that, you know, it really, it really showed me how impactful fathers are from being in the position as being a father and understanding how much I'm actually impacting my son, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're, when you're a kid, yeah, you, you want your father to be around. You know, for me, like I, like I told you, I, I went to schools in, in rural and suburban areas. You know, I played baseball and, you know, I'm looking around and it felt like everybody's father was involved in the baseball game, except for mine. And my mom sometimes went to the games and sometimes she couldn't because she was working. Right. You know, so I saw that and I felt that. And that's when you start feeling like this isn't normal. Most kids have their fathers in their lives. Um, and, you know, I, I wondered about that. But I, until I got older, I started seeing the impact of not having my father in my life. And so that's why I talk a lot about fatherlessness and the importance of fathers, uh, the importance of the nuclear family. And also I advocate for marriage. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not trying to be a hypocrite. I had my son at a wedlock, right? Like I said, I had him at a young age. This is before my mindset of understanding the importance of it. Right. I behaved in a particular manner that was reckless, right? And I don't regret anything. You know, I love my son. I wouldn't change anything. But I'm married today. And it's important that I'm married today so my son can understand, you know, what the right way of going about it is, understand to put his, put his attention and focus on himself. Um, and when he is ready, then to have a family, then to get married and then have a child, right? And not to do it the way that I did, because that puts children like my son and myself in danger of like I went through homelessness and, and all different types of things that come with uh, single parenthood that aren't good. So to get back to the article a little bit, from, from my perspective, I analyze childhood development. I know the statistics. I know many of the statistics when it comes to fatherlessness. Mm -hmm. I understand the development aspect because I went through it as a child who suffered in, certain, in some ways developmentally. I understand the father perspective as being a father and, you know, and I fill in all those little different gaps, you know, with psychology and behavioral analysis. So when I'm talking about what fathers provide, I'm thinking about all of these different things. And just, you know, to be really blunt, a happy, um, emotionally stable, not, you know, mentally unstable, but I'm saying emotionally stable yeah. child um, doesn't do these things. They don't, they're not like, I'm, I'm happy today. I have purpose in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go shoot up a mall, right? They're not doing that. They're, they're doing other things. They have a purpose in their life. And one thing, one of the things I really started understanding, you know, in the past number of years is how men need purpose. And if they don't have purpose, they will find it somehow. And if their purpose is to die and kill themselves in the process, they will do it. 
Um, so, you know, when you have a man without a purpose who is going through depression, who is feeling lost, and he has the physical capacity to hurt people more so than a woman does, uh, you know, that's a dangerous person in our society. And I wanted to, to, to highlight that, you know, there are kids who have aggression. Uh, there are kids, you know, when they're, when they're younger, I, I'll use an example. Let's say Mike Tyson. Yeah. Mike Tyson got in trouble. He had aggression. He was angry. He had a bad childhood. Right. But it took for someone to help channel his aggression towards something that could be constructive towards something that could help make him lots of money. And it did. That's what he was able to do. Without that, Mike Tyson would undoubtedly be just another guy who ended up in jail, right? That was the path that he was headed on. He needed a father figure because that's all he was afforded was a father figure, not his father, to help guide his frustration into something, something constructive. So um, to answer your question, I talk all the time about fathers and how important yeah. it is. And, and I just saw like this kid I mean, he was a man at the point. I, once you turn 18, to me, you're a man. Yeah. Um, I don't give him a pass for what he did at all. But what I'm trying to talk about is the future child that could potentially go in this direction. Right. And the, the couple of, of interesting things that um, I'm gathering from what you're talking about is uh, what, what um, did, did, you, did you ever have your father in, your, in the picture or was he kind of not there when you were born? Um. The best way of putting it is that I knew who my father was. Okay. I would hear from him seldomly. I would see him maybe once or twice a year. We moved a lot, so I would see him less and less. Uh, the last time I saw him was at the age of 16. And the last time I talked to him on the phone, I think I was 21 or 22. Okay. So when, when I think about this is, you know, you you had two directions, right? That you talk about the the, the lack of success among people who don't have fathers. Not only did you have two directions and you and you chose the right one, and I'm interested in that, but you also um, have an ability that um, just from talking to you and, and reading some of your writings, you have an ability to be very introspective um, that I've noticed, which I, I had two parents in the household um, and they were present and I didn't have that ability to be introspective. I, I happened to be an introvert, but mm -hmm. I had to seek out you know, therapy and read a lot of emotional books to understand it. So I'm curious about both of those things uh, for you. Yeah, so I would say that I'm introspective because kind of a lot of what you said, I, I got therapy um, a few times um, for different reasons, but it made me more and more interested. Um, you know, I think before I was more self-loathing. Um, you know, I was my harshest critic. Mm -hmm. And so I, even today I'm, I'm a low ego. I don't take myself too seriously. You know, I'm constantly re-examining what I say, what I do, what I'm portraying. Um, so I'm my harsh, I'm my harshest critic when it comes to stuff like that. But today I do it in a more in a healthy manner and not in a depressive manner, um, a self-loathing manner. Um, you know, I suffered from anxiety. I didn't realize how bad it was until um, it basically kind of disappeared for me. But I had social anxiety mm -hmm. um, and it was really affecting me. That social anxiety was connected to depression, um, low self-esteem. And, you know, I would pedestalize women as well. So, yeah, been there. you know, 
yeah, so, you know, she breaks up with me. I feel less about myself. I feel inadequate, so on and so forth. Um, and so much of my transformation as far as how I look at myself came from therapy and also came from a bad breakup mm -hmm. where I was, I was forced to, for one, move back home, you know, at the age of, was like 31, I think at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look at myself uh, as I'm a grown man having to move back home to my mom mm -hmm. and, and look at myself in and say, what am I interested in? What am I trying to do? Am I being a good father? What am I trying to portray? Um, you know, what are some of the things I always want to do? And I started traveling. And by accident, actually, I solo traveled to Europe. Uh, my first big trip, I did four countries um, in a couple of weeks, I think it was, yeah, four countries in a couple of weeks, just by myself. And it gave me a lot of time to really think about things. But one of the things that happened was I came back and I felt relaxed, but not like the vacation relaxed, mm -hmm. but like I felt generally relaxed. And that's when I started realizing that I had social anxiety, but when you go to a foreign country where you've never been before, it's almost like um, destigmatizing yourself, right? <laughs> um, you know, like a shock therapy. And I overcame the unknown. And so now I'm attracted to the unknown and I'm not scared anymore about certain things. Um, and I think that was necessary for me to go to, to to you know, be on podcasts like yours, mm -hmm. where I'm saying how I actually feel, and not being afraid of the repercussions, not being afraid if people don't like it. I do my best to say it in a particular manner and be conscious of it. I'm not trying to be hurtful or, mm -hmm. or anything towards people, but this is how I feel. And I think you have to have no fear about what people may say about you, not have anxiety not go through all these things, not be self-loathing in order to do what I'm doing today. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the observations I've also made about myself, and I, I did go to Europe as well, but one, one of the observations I made about myself was like, and other people too, is that when, when we're brought up kind of to live in this almost machine way, like you go to school, you get a job, this is your purpose. You go home, you get married, X, Y, Z. And you know, a lot of people, um, I, I, are you, you're a millennial, I think technically. Yeah. Or no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like I, early millennial. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, and I'm, I'm 29, so we're not, we're not too far apart in age. You're like my brother's age. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, when we do things that are incongruent with who we are, so it's like, oh, I hate this job, but I'm here. Um, we end up having that. I think a lot of anxiety stems from that. Uh, personally mm -hmm. and then also you know the foods you put in your body and how you treat your body and 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 that stuff yeah no and i i'm you know even now i'm trying to get more healthy i'm not the thinnest of a person but um i hear what you're saying i don't disagree with what you're saying i think for myself mm -hmm. a lot of it comes from when i was a kid yeah um and it just either went unchecked until you know, I had therapy, um, you know, just like a little bit of background. I, I worked at one particular job that I was having panic attacks at, but I didn't realize I was having panic attacks um, until I had a really bad one. And I started going out on disability and things like that. Um, and then from there, I knew I had to do something because everybody else is fine, but I'm having panic attacks at this job. 
you know, it was at a call center. So it's like every call, it's just nonstop phone calls, nonstop phone yeah. calls. And from like an anxiety standpoint, and they're listening to your calls and they're watching how long you're on it. It just felt like a lot of pressure mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't managing it well. So I went to, I went to a therapist um, and all of a sudden I'm talking about my childhood and it was like a week of crying, right? Cause I, I had all this stuff and I didn't realize it and I had to let it all go. And mm -hmm. I went to therapist for months to, to accept my childhood, to accept what happened, right? Um, to no longer be angry or frustrated with my father or my mother, right? Just to accept, for, accept them for who they are because they may be your parents, but they're human beings and they're flawed. And so I'm no longer angry at my father, I'm disappointed. Um, you know, my father passed away uh, a number of years ago now, but I'm not, I know who my father is. I know what he did and what he didn't do. Yeah. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed as a kid, you know, who should have his father in his life. Um, and same thing with my mom. I'm not, I'm not angry with my mom. I don't hate my mother. I love my mother. Um, but I accept that she's flawed. I accept who she is. So I think therapy is, is really, really big. Um, and I always advocate for it. Yeah. I feel like we could have a three hour conversation about that. Separately. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I, I've definitely been there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been dating someone now um, since I moved here for like eight, I think about eight months now. And, um, you know, she, uh, she baked me this cake, like she's from a rural place. She baked me this cake that was literally hours of work and it looked like my cat. <laughs> and as I was talking in, in therapy about it, I like was like holding back tears and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, where you just like start randomly, like almost crying. When you think about some of these things, you actually spend time like, am I trying to heal my mom or my dad or whatever, you know, these, they call them healing fantasies and, and, and stuff like that. And you live the, the, what they call like the love maps, you act out what you witnessed. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of crazy when you think about that. And I think back to like, you know, you're, you're kind of best friends, right. With your, with your son, how, wh who did you use as, as a model um, when you, when you were raising him? I, I really didn't have one. Right. I, so like, how'd you do it? I just, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how to really answer that. Mm. I just did what I thought was the best thing to possibly do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and in some ways I did things that were natural. Um, you know, for example, I remember, I remember having the feeling like in his first few days of being born of wanting to get to that point where I could tickle him, mm -hmm. right? I don't even know why I didn't tickle people, but I just <laughs> remember like when, I, when he's like, you know, it takes a little bit for them to like being tickled and it's a fun thing for them. And I remember he was big enough for I could tickle him and he liked it. And it was like a little thing with us. Yeah. And so it's that contact with him. It's that, um, you know, rough and tumble play. I would do stuff like that with him. That's like a natural thing to do. Yeah. Um, Across and, the animal kingdom, people play, right. you know, play with their kids. You know, I, I have a dog now. I rough and tumble play with her all the time. <laughs> and, you know, you teach boundaries and stuff like that. 
and I, I just started doing what felt natural. Um, I, you know, in the beginning, I, I know I did some things where it was just like, well, this is what I've seen. And I remember thinking like, I don't like how I feel when I do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to change my perspective or my approach. Um, you know, more specifically spanking. I know spanking is controversial to talk about, but you know, I was spanked as a kid. And so when you, when you are spanked, you think nothing is wrong with it. So then you spank your kid. And then I started realizing like, for one, my son's like me, he's a sensitive kid, right? And not only that, he looks up to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't need to spank him, right? All I need to do is show him that I'm disappointed even to this day, uh, if my son sees that I'm disappointed, he will be upset and he'll cry, right? I don't need to put my hands on my son because I've built enough of a relationship with him um, that it hasn't been necessary to do, I don't know, since un under the age of five, like, yeah. you know, you know, um, you know I've, I've scared him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just uh, you, you have dad strength. You just got to give that a look. Right, <laughs> right. It's like that's enough. You know that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But I respect him, and he respects me. So I don't need to put my hands on him. Yeah. And and so that was one of those things that I stopped that behavior of spanking because that's the behavior that my mom put upon me that I felt like wasn't necessary. Um, and I didn't want to repeat that. Like it just didn't feel good to do that. It felt unnecessary. When I, when I think about like how, you know, you didn't have that role model figure to base it off of, um, do you think there's any like sort of, like to me, it sounds like you had a humility because you didn't have um, that. You had a humility about doing it where you could yeah. really listen to yourself and not say, well, this is what my dad did. So I'm going to do it. You had an ability because you were your first kind of father figure to say, no, this isn't how I want to do it. That's, that's a good point. You know, let's say I did have my father there and my father was this hard disciplinarian. Would I be that way? Right. Probably, you know, I'm more likely to follow the direction of my father. That's just, that's a normal thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, maybe you're right from, from kind of having a blank slate, I was able to try to, I was able to figure it out and, and go with what felt good for me rather than trying to appease my concept of what a father is based off of my father. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was totally in rejection of what my father was, mm -hmm. you know, without a doubt. I did not want to be my father, even though I had my, my son out of wedlock, uh, you know, at a rocky relationship with his mother. We're good today. We co-parent. Uh, she's a great mother. Um, but between us, uh, it wasn't there. And obviously we weren't married. So I always made it a point to do everything I can to, to uh, be a good role model for my son. Mm -hmm. um, I told this story before, and it sounds silly, but I would listen to all types of music, like hip hop and stuff like that. Yep. Obviously it has cursing and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I remember basically like from the very beginning, I could be blasting hip hop down the street, sound system in my car, pick up my son, I put it to techno. <laughs> <laughs> and, and basically my son heard techno and probably even still to this day, I don't play hip hop before my son. Every time my car's in the sun, he listens to techno music with me. Mm -hmm. right? Because 
I didn't want to play music of profanity, explicit content. I just don't think that's appropriate for kids. Yeah. That's just my personal viewpoint. And I didn't want to put that around him. Um, on top of that, I rarely curse around my son, mm-hmm. um, even to this day. But especially when, it, when, I was young, uh, when he was younger, I didn't curse around my son at all. Because, you know, not to put my mom in the bus, but my mom sometimes curses like a sailor. And I didn't really like that. I understand that. So, you know, I wanted to, I, I understood in many ways that I, I didn't want to put my son in an environment that was unhealthy. And I always thought that cursing in front of kids just didn't feel good to me. You know, whether it was from music or whether it's from the adults in the room, I didn't like it. So I just never showed him that this is how you are to be a man when you're cursing in front of children, that that's perfectly acceptable. So, um, you know, that's one of those things that I, I figured out for myself and just tried to exemplify. Yeah. The other, the other thing I would, I'm interested to get your take on as, as a parent is um, social media. Um, and as far as the isolation that it can create, um, you know, Facebook was around, I think it, when it, Facebook first came out and I was in middle school or high school, I think it was not, you, you had to, you had to have a college account or create a fake profile to join, but now it's very normalized. And I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, these sorts of violent acts have gone up since these social media companies are, are coming up. So as a, as a, I mean, your child was born basically, you know, when he was like, how early was Facebook available to him? Like, how do you handle social media um, and, and other things when you're, when you're raising him? So my son, my son's 16, um, he'll be 17 October. Um, You know, when it comes to social media, I was very honest with him about what social media is. Um, You know, he understands that it is manipulative. it is a vulnerability. Um, there is some aspects of danger to it, but there are aspects of connecting with people. So, you know, he uses Snapchat and Instagram. Yeah. But he's, I think, I think I drilled into him that he has to be very cautious when it comes to stuff like that. Um, I'm always asking him, who are you talking to? You know, but I, I, I give him enough space where I don't go on his, um, you know, on his phone to, you know, snoop behind him. But uh, I want I want him to, to know the truth behind it and know, also for him to know the dangers behind it. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and, and it shouldn't be surprising, my son is just like me mm-hmm. in many ways. He's, he is introspective. He is very cautious when it comes to certain things. He does watch other people's behaviors and you know, part of that is me guiding him. I'm like, watch how this person behaves, watch how they move, watch what they say and how they say it. And so he's, he's more and more conscious of certain things about how people are moving. Um, and, and one thing I realized, and he behaves this particular way, it's always interesting when you're the calmest person in the room, right? When you're the most calm and rational person, and then you can examine the room and you can see who exactly is off, mm-hmm. who's behaving wildly, who's all over the place. And meanwhile, you're stoic. And that's what my son is. My son is even more calm than I am, right? 
he's he's super chill very polite adults love love having him around <laughs> like that's just that's who he is and I, I say it all the time he's the better version of me um so when it comes to social media he's very um he's very aware right he's aware of certain things he's aware of you know manipulation he's aware of bad behavior and and people who are somewhat nefarious not in a paranoid way but he's just examining the room so for one i tell him like don't go on twitter just don't even bother with twitter um stay away from twitter as long as you can you know you're 16 when you're 18 you can do whatever you want um but instagram you know he's he likes to draw he does art his focus is on anime and art on there um snapchat he just talks with friends that he already knows or friends of friends that he knows so he's he's very careful with stuff like that um and so i think that's what parents really need to do they need to have these this open dialogue with their kids about what social media actually is the manipulation behind it and so their kids understand rather than saying no you can't do x y and z and they're looking like but my friends have it you know mm -hmm. and then they're thinking of the social pressure to keep up and all this different stuff but i've always been very very uh age appropriately honest with with things with my son Right. And uh, it kind of goes along with that. Um, but how do you navigate what, what people like to call, you know, toxic masculinity? Um, oh, you know. <laughs> um, in regards to my son? Yeah. I mean, because because you're you seem you seem to have that kind of emotional grasp of understanding. But a lot of people um, or fathers might not. And so they might be closed off and not speak about their emotions. It's a very it's much more acceptable now for men to be in therapy, but there is still sort of a stigma about it and to talk about the feelings. So I'm just wondering how you impart that. Um, and it seems like you have how you impart yeah. that, or if it's just kind of natural demeanor that he has, or. I mean, you know, I'm an, I'm a strong influence for him. So his demeanor is much like mine, um, or even stronger, uh, as far as being stoic. Um, but I guess when it comes to the emotional aspect, you know, I'm in, I'm in touch with my emotions, but my emotions aren't wild, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I, I understand my flaws, but I don't harp on it. Um, I understand where, where I'm strong at, but I don't make it all about that. So for me, everything is about balance. And so when I think of masculinity and I think of manhood, the conclusion that I've come to, much like other things, it's about a balance, right? So you don't want to be this hardened man who acts like he never experiences pain. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, you don't want to be this guy who's always crying. Right. And, and acting like, uh, you know, you can't, you can't control yourself. You're just impulsive, right? Mm -hmm. You have to find the balance between the two. It's perfectly fine to cry when it's appropriate. It's perfectly fine to be strong in a particular situation when it's appropriate. Um, and, and also for me, I find it more appropriate to be calm under pressure than being wild under pressure. Um, and if you practice being calm, I think when the pressure comes, it'll come second nature to you. Um, actually, I can kind of give you a quick story, something that actually happened yesterday. Yeah, sure. Um, we were at uh, a mall here in New Jersey. Uh, you might be familiar with Jersey Gardens. No, 
in the, in Elizabeth. Okay. Okay. So but we're yeah, at the. I'm familiar with Elizabeth, like to get to Newark Airport every time I had. To <laughs> All right. Well, in, in Elizabeth, they have well, the Jersey Gardens Mall. It's a big outlet mall, and we were there, and my wife was, you know, changing, um, you know, in the in the fitting room, and I was just playing with my phone, and I hear a commotion, and I hear people shouting, and then I'm looking up in the hall hallway area, and people are running. And I'm like, oh shit, what's about to happen? And suddenly I see people closing the door and a rush of people coming to the back of the store where we are towards the fitting area. I go towards the room where my wife is. She opens the door and sees me. And in the commotion, people are saying gunshots. Right? It was just panic. And so I told her, I think there was gunshots. I don't know what was going on. So we all not just me and her, but a bunch of people first going into her fitting room to kind of conceal, uh, conceal themselves. But then we were eventually brought into the back area. And there's all these people who are kind of panicking because they don't know what's going on. Yes. You know, in a matter of seconds, we're hearing, you know, it was a gunshot, it was this, someone's coming. They, like, they just don't know what's going on. And so it's perfectly reasonable to be panicking about it. But for me, while this was all going on, I'm thinking a whole bunch of different things, but I'm calm. And so my wife doesn't know what's going on, but I'm there with her and I'm calm. And she told me afterwards, uh, I, we later found out that it wasn't gunshots, but it was some sort of like a, like a large group of kids came in possibly a fight started or, or caused some sort of like big commotion to the point where it sparked a panic. Maybe people are, are on edge because of what happened in Texas recently. Mm -hmm. um, and there was like some loud noise and people mistook and saw people running and that's how panic starts. You see one thing happen and then, yeah, you know, it turns into a lockdown situation. Um, so thankfully it was a false alarm. Thankfully nothing actually did happen. But me being calm really helped my wife and comforted her. And so it's that moment that it could have actually been something and it wouldn't have helped her for me to be panicking just like her. Uh, matter of fact, me being calm made her more calm because if there's really something going on, you need someone to be calm and rational in that moment to help get out of it or navigate around it or to help survive it. So. You know, I'm always calm. You know, I'm, I'm calm at, at work and all these different ways. But I, I think men need to find some sort of way to be stoic. You know, make stoic great again. Uh, <laughs> you know, be be calm, be rational, and have a balance. Yeah, I've uh, I've definitely been called a, uh, a brick wall before <laughs> <laughs> with the stoic. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, but I mean, that's, that's true. You're, you're totally right. Um, you can't have two people panicking. Someone has to make the decisions in, in almost any case about what the right move is. And you're never, if you're not clear headed, you're going to make the wrong one. Um, and right. thankfully it wasn't, it wasn't that case. Um, so on the topic of kind of fatherlessness, um, I think about how it seems to be something that's not really talked about other than by people on the right. It seems like, um, you know, Obama and Don Lemon, they used to talk about it, but like many things these days, it's become something that is not really talked about um, or it's a political issue. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? 
part of me wants to say it's because of feminism. Mm. Um, feminism in many ways is mainstream. Um, I like to say that there are a lot of feminists who don't realize that they sound exactly like feminists. Um, and if you were to call them a feminist, they'd probably say they're not a feminist, mm. right? But they sound just like them. They say phrases just like them. They behave just like them. Um, all they're missing is the purple hair, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and because of that, talking about single parenthood is translated as you're going against single mothers. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about the reunification of family. Yeah. Um, just like when you talk about marriage and a nuclear family, it is misinterpreted as patriarchy and men wanting to be in power of a family. And that's not what marriage is, you know, uh, and that's not what men are even advocating for. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's, there's a term called submission that gets thrown around as being a bad thing, but submission is voluntary. That's what submission is. Um, if a woman wants to get married to someone and she chooses to allow that person to lead the household, not with everything, but you know, lead in decision-making, uh, lead in, in certain aspects, let him be the final voice. That is her choosing to submit to her husband, right? That is submission. That, that's a choice on her part. She can choose to do that or not. Um, that is not by force. And so when I'm talking about, and, and my wife tries to practice this um, with, when it comes to us, it's her submitting to me. Her saying, you know what? I'm gonna let him lead when it comes to these things. And when she lets me lead, she sees that I'm effective. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know what? Adam's right 99% of the time when it comes to this stuff, I'm gonna let him lead. And so the other part when it comes to leading households that people don't really think about, they see the glory and leadership. They see the, you know, the power of being in charge of the family. Like, like it's just this glorious aspect. But what they don't understand is if you fail, it's all on you. And that's the responsibility of leading the household. So when men want to lead the household, they're taking on a responsibility of potential failure. And, and I don't think people understand that. They're taking on the, you know, if they're supposed to be the breadwinner, for example, they're taking on the financial responsibility of being the single entity to earn money, which is the hardest aspect uh, because you have no control over markets. You have no control if there's layoffs, yeah. right? If those things happen, you have to get back out there and you have to reap the rewards of your hard labor. You're the one who's taking control of that. And then you have to bring that home and lead the household in other manners. If you fail, it is on you. If you fail, you failed as a father. And that feeling like a failure as a father, and I've been there, is not a good feeling whatsoever. It's a detrimental feeling, but that's that's a responsibility aspect to it. And I think when we talk about family, we don't see family as a responsibility between two people. Mm -hmm. Feminists have reimagined family as being a power dynamic, a power struggle. You know, like the Marxist theory. Yeah. You know, it's it's a division between two people fighting for power, 
in many ways that power comes from their children too mm-hmm. you know so when we see family court overwhelmingly going towards the mother's way spite everything else that is a leverage that is a power dynamic that is a power leverage against her significant other or former significant other at that point so this is this is the outcome that i'm i'm seeing you know why is it becoming political i don't know it shouldn't be political but i think and this is many ways why i left the left or in some ways the left left me is because they've catered to the feminists you know the feminists used to be the french and now it feels like they're of the majority, um, or at least they're being catered to as if they're the majority. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know which one it is, but it's the right that is saying family values. It's the right that is saying the nuclear family is extremely important, and so it's become this political thing. And to me, family shouldn't be political. I, I personally don't think family is a political thing. I, you know, I don't think there's a left family, right family. I think there is a healthy family and an unhealthy family. And if we want to improve the chances of a healthy family, statistically, you, you know, outside of my emotions or, or biblical principles or anything like that, statistically, the nuclear family is the most successful outcome. And the single parent family um, is the most detrimental, has the most detrimental outcome. Overwhelmingly, single parents are poor. You know, yep. so this, um, this imaginary world where this is high powered woman who's a single parent, that's not the case, especially in, a, in an environment where it's almost necessary for, I wouldn't say almost, it's pretty much necessary for most families to have both people working. Inflation, um, bitch. <laughs> inflation, you name it. And let's say you have one, two, three children, right? So, yep. you know, this idea that you can live it up and, 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 do it all by yourself you can't it's not it's not a good idea it's a terrible idea um, for a multitude of reasons um, and one last thing i'll say is family has been family has been remixed that's what it feels like to me um, failure has been normalized and come you know things happen when within a relationship um, you know single parenthood sometimes isn't sought after. It's just, it, it's something that happens. Um, and mind you, my, my term of single parenthood is not someone who is divorced. It's someone who was never married, had children with someone mm-hmm. and, and continued down that, that path. So I'm not talking about divorces. Um, you know, for me, I see how single parenthood has also reshaped how we see fathers. Um, and fathers have been reduced to basically just being money pits. Um, they're income earners, and that's all that men provide for their children. And I know that is utterly false, especially when it comes to our young boys, but it is incredibly important for the girls um, to see what a healthy male figure looks like for when they grow up and they want to start a family and they start dating and so on and so forth. Um, and on top of the protection of their daughters to help help protect them um, emotionally and physically. That's an interesting point um, because when we when you talk about children born out of wedlock, it's you know maybe because they 
chose the bad partner. And I, and is, is that like a, a self-perpetuating kind of cycle that you would see? Yes. Yes. I, I mean, personally, this is anecdotal. I know many women who are single parents who have terrible pickers, right? When they would go and explain to me how they met someone, what it was like for them and so on and so forth. I'm like, there's red flags all over this. <laughs> if you were to talk to any guy, they'd be like, don't mess with this guy. Um, but they, and, and many times they didn't have their father in their life to tell them that you're picking the wrong kind of guy. This is not a guy for family uh, reproduction, at least at that moment that you're, you're yeah. looking to start a family. Um, so they could have the best of intentions, but this sounds stereotypical, but what I'm saying is women tend to leave with their emotions. Men, most of the time, are very analytical. So you see some guy that you like, you're attracted to him, right? Mm -hmm. And he says he knows how to say the right things, right? But that's a manipulation. He's saying the right things because he knows that will get you emotionally involved. But you can't recognize that's a manipulation. Yeah. If you were to tell your male friend what this guy said, it would be like, oh, he's full of it. Like, why would you believe that? Whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Because we can see certain certain things, we can see certain manipulations. And I would say traditionally speaking, the father can see that too. The father is supposed to be there to help say, this doesn't sound right or to ask certain questions that never get asked. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I met Johnny. Johnny works at Wendy's. The father says, well, what's Johnny planning on doing for the rest of his life? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's an important question. We need to find that out. And in the meantime, she's emotionally involved with this person. Yeah. And so she's going to overlook certain things because she wants to stay emotionally involved with this person. And he may be manipulative. Like I'm completely making up a scenario. But yeah, this yeah, is yeah. Like, I, this is the type of thing that I'm sure you've met someone who went through something similar. Yeah, I, I know we've women been who've been through something. We've all been through it in, in some to some degree. And so when I talk about protection from for fathers, when a, a father, I I, can, I think of one particular person um, who had a really good relationship with a father, and she goes to them and asks some questions. And he gave her certain things that she always remembers when it comes to men. Mm -hmm. Never let a man do this. Um, always do this. You know, she remembers these things. And this is coming from a male perspective. And she always keeps these things in mind. She doesn't let her emotions run away because she always has her father in the back of her head. Excuse me. And mm -hmm. her father is, is still alive where she can talk to him if she needs to. This is the type of protection that I'm talking about. Uh, the emotional protection to help protect her from allowing her emotions to run away um, when it comes to selecting a, a partner. Yeah, I had a friend in college that used to say that that girl has more red flags in a communist parade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know what? From the guy's perspective, you know, I've, I've actually told my son this and it sounds harsh to say, so I'll put in a caveat. Um, avoid women who have father issues mm -hmm. um you know i've told my son my son you know he like like certain girls and i asked where's her father i was asking that mm -hmm. he was like oh i'm talking i, I kind of you know she kind of likes me i was like 
what's her relationship with, like with her dad? <laughs> and right, he, he's looking at me like, I get why you're asking me this. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I didn't really ask her. You know, I'm like, find out. And I'll tell you a lot. <laughs> there were certain situations yeah. that he found out. And very soon, those particular aspects popped up. They play out. And they play out. And so my caveat when it comes to that, in case uh, a young woman is listening to this, um, who feels like she fits in that, that realm, is be careful of a woman who has daddy issues that are unresolved, meaning she has not received uh, any sort of therapy. She's not worked on herself to overcome these things, right? So that's the caveat that's incredibly important. I believe that people can change. They're not determined by their, their childhood, but it's unchecked that I'm concerned about. And when we tell people that there is nothing wrong with you, that you're perfectly fine, this destructive behavior, that's just your personality. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's like, oh, it just a chaotic goes, person. <laughs> it goes both ways. Uh, don't yeah. date a guy with daddy issues unless he's gone to therapy. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. Or mom issues. Um, and you know what? Mm-hmm. One thing, I've t- my wife has always said, because we're, you know, we're a little bit older, she's like, oh, I wish I knew you when I was younger. I said, you right. wouldn't have liked me. Yeah, I tell her this all the time. I'm yeah. like, you wouldn't have liked me because I still had stuff I had to go through. And I... I wasn't that person. I know what I was like, and you wouldn't have liked me. You know, it doesn't mean like I'm completely different. I'm not, I wasn't this crazy person and I'm fine today. But when it comes to being prepared for a relationship and handling certain things and, and my mindset, I wasn't completely there to, to, uh, to, to be the married man that you see today, basically. Right. Um, one of the, the other things that um, your article kind of made me think about um, is crime and, and from fatherlessness is, is, have you looked into whether it matters how the father ended up out of the house? You know, for example, um, a lot of, a lot of people on the more liberal end might po- point to the drug war, um, or, mm-hmm. or people might say, uh, uh, this person was in the military and their father died or their father died in the military. Um, or someone might've just been arrested or just deserted the family. Do you think that there is a difference in in that? Yes. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the exact statistics. I'm going to butcher this, but I remember hearing about, I didn't read it myself, so I'm, I'm almost timid to even repeat it, but I remember mm-hmm. hearing how children of divorce fared worse than children who had a parent die early. And it's because you know, their father dying, for example, they have no control over or anything like that. But when the separation of a divorce and their father doesn't come around, it's far more detrimental to them because they're confused as to why their father isn't around, why they can't see each other, why he's not there. They, they have a lot more to try and understand uh, versus a death. A death is a final kind of thing that happens. Um, unfortunately. So I think how it happens matters. I've actually asked this question, you know, is it, is it worse to never know who your father is or worse to know who your father is, but see that he's not interested in you? And so I've had, I don't know, back and forth with people. And I think, I remember asking this online, I think most of the people said it's worse to know who your father is and he knows who you are and he's just not interested. Mm-hmm. I think that's worse. And I, I tend to agree with that. 
Yeah. Um, just backtracking a little bit, one of the points you brought up about feminism, I think that goes along also when I think about it with families look different today than they did years ago. And a lot mm-hmm. of our kind of culture, whether it's with, you know, bathrooms for everybody or whatever is playing to minority, like, um, and I don't mean that in the sense of like race, but minority mm-hmm. of views of how families look. So there might be two moms or there might be two dads. Um, and I'm curious if, if, you know, having the two moms without the father it would also um, have an impact or if, or if they can sort of serve that role um, there. I, I ultimately see it like this, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking about the nuclear family, um, I'm in no way trying to say like um, uh, family households where the gay partners don't matter whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's more of me saying that um, obviously heterosexual relationships are more common or far more common. Um, you know, for children to be in the hands of a gay partner, they're likely coming from adoption, which means it came from a scenario of a unwed, you know, partner relationship or whatever may have happened for that child to be put into adoption. So in, in some, or actually, let me rephrase that, surrogacy. Surrogacy is another way that people are, um, uh, gay relationships are having children. Um, but I, I ultimately think like love is love, you know, when it comes to children, the more people that love the child and help support the child, the better. Mm-hmm. The, the other aspect, you know, while I'm saying it's good for young men to see their father figure to mimic the behavior, a healthy behavior afterwards, I, I also talk about single parenthood from the aspect of um, like a, a level of obligation put on one person to fill, fulfill everything be at two places at one time, which they can't, right? Because if you're a single mother, you have to work. So that means that someone's watching your children. So that means that you're paying someone to watch your children or your grandmother or your, you know, your mother is watching her grandchildren or something of that nature. But someone else is filling in the void of that second parent on a consistent basis. And so it is a, it is a unfair and, and in many ways failing way to, to go about it because at some point as a parent, you're going to lack in some, some area. You know, you have to work. And the more you work, the more money you earn, but the less time you're with your kids. But the, the less you work, the less money you make, and the more time you're with your kids, the yeah. more you can help raise the kids, but you don't have as much money and you can't live where you live or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. The economics don't balance out. So it's a, like, I always say that it is a, it is a unfair situation to put any, any woman in or any father, single fathers, anybody in to be the, the person that has to literally do everything. Um, and in many ways, it is a failing role to put anybody in, you know, there, I'm sure there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of single parents who do the best that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not to, this is never to take a shot at anybody like that, like my mother. But no matter how hard my mom tried, we went through some stuff. You know, we were homeless. Why? Because it was all on her. She had to make moves and certain things would happen and it was all on her. And that is the unfair position. And ultimately what it comes down to is that the children suffer because of it. Right. Um, And the other thing, and like you said, you know, 
pe- the people exist outside of these statistics that do a great job. They have, you know, I, I think back to, to Ben Carson, um, he, his, his mother who couldn't read, like made him read and provide her with book reports. Um, and so, you know, there are other things that can be done that can help give your child a leg up, even if you're statistically at a, at a disadvantage, you know, rather than just saying like, you, you know, from victim to, to victor. Right. Um, the other thing I think about is it also, you know, if you look at trust fund kids, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of those, you know, they, they get DUIs, they drive drunk, they do drugs and drive, they crash their cars, they get into these million dollar rehab facilities, you get their records expunged. And so they may have both parents, but the parents are still absent. And so these, these sorts of things also exist. And they might think that they love their child because they provide them a ton of material things. But you know, these outliers from what we're kind of saying here about like, they exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, what, the way I see it is like, uh, I always use the example of smoking and cancer, right? Just because you smoke cigarettes doesn't mean that you'll get cancer. Mm-hmm. But smoking cigarettes increases the likeliness of you getting cancer. So, see, you know, when it comes to the nuclear family, the nuclear family increases the odds that your child will grow up in a healthy environment and, and have, uh, you know, economically prosperous and, and physically healthy and all these different things that come around it. All I'm trying to do is increase the likeliness of it. Obviously, there are abusive households, there are neglectful households that have both parents. And I would never advocate for two parents to be there, even though they're unhealthy people. Right. That is, that, you know, that's counter to what, what I would ever advocate for. Um, and you cannot guarantee that all relationships will work out. So mm-hmm. there are obviously going to be certain situations that happen. But what I'm advocating for is people to family plan. That's, that's basically it. If you want to have children, family plan. If you don't want to have kids, use protection. Mm-hmm. That's, that's basically it. Um, you know, and this leads into abortion and things like that. But these things are avoidable is ultimately what I'm getting at. Um, you know, I've yet to hear a story where the woman got pregnant because she couldn't afford condoms. And I find it weird that people bring up, you know, $4 condoms they couldn't yeah. afford and that's why they had a baby so now they have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout their lifetime because they couldn't afford four like that to me that makes zero sense and that's just that's an excuse um you know so what i'm talking about is family planning if you want to have a family then do it right you know find someone who is marriage-minded find someone who actually wants a family not says they want a family but behaves in a manner that shows that they want a family have married, uh, get married, then have a child, right? Follow it in an order that increases the likeliness that your child will not have to suffer in any form or fashion. Doing it out of order increases the likeliness of someone like myself growing up as a child and having to deal with single parenthood. Mm-hmm. And that what comes with that. So, you know, I always advocate for two-parent household from a balanced standpoint of responsibilities. Um, and increasing the likeliness of children, <clears throat> children being healthy. Um, I personally know a couple of people who have, I think maybe one or two people who are of a gay relationship and they have, they have multiple kids actually. And great people, I'm sure they, they have a healthy environment. I would never poo-poo that, right? It is, it is far better for you know, children who are adopted 
even into into gay relationships or anything like that. Because I ultimately I care about is balance of responsibility and love for children. I also understand that children mimic behavior. Yeah. And so, you know, if most relationships are heterosexual and the boys are looking at the fathers, the girls are looking at their mothers, I understand that this, this is a normal thing, that they're going to start mimicking behavior, start mimicking traits. And it is best for their most important parental figure, someone that they're, they're blood related to, um, that, that was in the process of their own creation, it's better for that person to be there to help guide that child into adulthood um, than not. Yeah, and uh, we we've kind of um, I guess yeah. Were you were you married before dating apps became very popular? No, um, <laughs> no, I was I was on dating apps. Okay, yeah, been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I feel like we've all I feel like we've all broken the rule of like you know don't sleep with anyone you couldn't picture having a child with. We've all broken that rule because um, yeah. we have hormones and we're human and and whatever that is. Um, but it's also just really interesting that, you know, when we do those things, it's like, there's sort of an emotional vacuum that we try to convince ourselves doesn't exist. Um, and we have, we encourage this kind of hookup culture swiping, um, for the next best thing, um, rather than really getting to know a person. That's one thing. And two, um, you know, you went to Europe and learned who you are. A lot of people don't know who they are because they don't really sit with themselves or they don't explore. And so what, you know, I don't think that our divorce rate is over 50% for no reason. Yeah. Right. No, like, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's, there's multiple reasons why uh, our divorce rate is high. Um, we've become more selfish. We've become more narcissistic. Um, you know, feminism has its hand in it a little bit. Um, I think that men have in many ways become weaker. They become more docile. Um, you know, I think in some cases that um, men allow themselves to be put in a position where they're weak and women don't respect weak men. Mm-hmm. And so they've been unrespectable. And, you know, you can only put up with that for so long from a, from a female perspective. And so, yeah. They get divorced in, in, in many cases. Um, you know, sometimes women seek out weaker men. They think they, you know, being in the position of power, let's say she makes more money than him or makes all the money. And, you know, but I think ultimately uh, women want to, to feel a sense of looking up to their partner and, and respecting them. You know, you want to respect the person you're with. And I think a lot of guys, um, whether they weren't raised in a particular way, mm-hmm. um, but they're not respectable. At the same time, I think there's a bigger issue when it comes to women seeing men as being optional. That's, that's a very big thing that I've seen. Um, as soon as things start going a little bit sideways, you know, at the five-year mark or whatever, even though they said till death do us part, you know, they're like, well, I have my own job. I have this, I have that. I don't really need him. He's optional. And then they get around their girlfriends and they say, yeah, you deserve better. <laughs> and then here they are. The movie's middle. It's so different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, then they, they get divorced and, you know, they think they're about to live their best life. 
And there's many cases where they're even more miserable and there's nothing really wrong with that person, right? It's just the, you know, the grass is greener mentality um, that, that people have a hard time fighting against. Um, I can think of people in certain situations where they're in their 50s and they're single and they're looking at the market and it's not good. And this is from a female perspective. Right? I bet. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's know, ghosting now. <laughs> yeah. That, oh, that, that happens to them. And they're like, can you believe I was talking to this guy for three days and, he and he's, in responding to me. he's ghosting me? Like what? Right. Yeah. She's like, and I was just, I was giving him a shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think that, um, you know, the divorce rate is, is a multitude of things that, that have come together. But I think that's one of the things that we don't really talk about, especially is, is um, women seeing men as optional and men, certain men, I should say, I'm not saying all men, but certain men um, not understanding how important it is to be in a relationship with a woman that respects them, not likes them, but respects them. Respecting each other, both both ways, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think you're right when you point out this, this situation, maybe it's not the sole factor, but people point to just guns, just get guns away. Um, and mm -hmm. there's other factors that are just like not looked at. And you have this, um, you have this man who was not taught how to be a man or how to deal with his emotions um, and just basically commit. Um, I, I, I think I've heard of it somewhere. It may have been you wrote or, or someone else, but basically it's a public suicide uh, yeah. where this person is so distraught that, you know, he, he's, he wants to just take out people with him and, and he knows he's going to die at the end of the day too. And we see it mostly affecting boys. I think the statistic that I saw was about 98% are boys. Um, I also read the other day that 10%, the suicide rate is 10, 10 times higher for, um, I think that's the correct stat, for men in, after divorce. And so, you know, there's a, there's a very coexisting relationship between men and women and that impacts the next generation and they can go out and commit these crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think with, you know, suicide is one of those things that we don't talk enough about. We always say mental health, and that's such like a, a broad statement. What, what mm -hmm. does that mean? That's like saying, you know, foot health, <laughs> you know, um, but we need to, we need to talk about the suicide aspect and, and why Certain, certain people are choosing suicide. Why have they come to the point of hopelessness to take their own life? And in many ways, it's a loss of purpose. Um, you know, I think about sometimes like war, like, you know, World War II, we hear, mm. you know, stories. They knew that going off to fight a war, they could possibly die, but they were willing to risk it for a greater purpose. Right. Right. So men are willing to risk their own life for a, a greater purpose if they feel that it's necessary because it gives them something to live for, even if it means risking their, their own life. And I think we live in a relatively peaceful time in, in, in human history. And I think that there are a lot of young men absent of fathers to help guide them to some sort of purpose in this new age world with the internet and, you know, uh, uh, a world economy and all these different things of figuring out what's their purpose because we don't really have a national purpose anymore no right so we have to say 
all right, what's your individual purpose? Uh, you know, we're not fighting wars on a consistent basis to that degree where there's world wars or anything like that. You know, we're not having everybody go to the factory to build tanks. So what is your purpose? What do you want to do with your own life? And I, and I truly believe that that's what fathers help for their children to do. And it's extremely important for young men to feel like they have some sort of purpose. Like, it's, it's incredible when you give a kid just one direction mm -hmm. and they just take it and run with it, right? And it's something they become passionate about and want to go towards. You know, my son is into animation. He wants to do manga um, after high school. And, you know, he's talked to me how he's like, I want to, I want to go to Japan. I want to do this. And I said, okay, let's do this. You know, so everything has been towards his purpose. You know, if he talked to some girls, like, remember your purpose, though, you can talk to this girl if you want. But as of right now, your purpose is what we explained is that you're going to draw every day, you're going to work on your craft, and you're going to go to Japan, right? And that's been his purpose. And he's been running with it, and I'm helping to foster it. And it's amazing. It's, yeah. And that's that type of thing that I think more boys need. And so even if my son is struggling with something, you know, even if he's, you know, a crappy school day, he knows that it's not the end of the world. It feels like it, but it's not the end of the world. He has a purpose after school. And I think for me, there were times when I was in school where I felt like this is the end of the world. Uh, you know, you, you catastrophize it and no one's there to check you on it. You don't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody to talk to about my, my feelings about what was happening with me. And so I'm, I'm there to ask him, how's it going? How are you feeling? What's going on? And realign him and keep him on his path. I, I just think that there, there are a lot of purposeless, purposeless boys, mm -hmm. uh, purposeless men who are struggling um, in a constantly changing environment. Um, and even more so if they don't have their fathers in their lives. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult to navigate this world and it, it feels even worse when it feels like no one's really listened to you as a young man because people are re repeating stuff like toxic masculinity and patriarchy. Yeah. Just, just when we're just acknowledging that you're suffering a little bit, right? And so this is where the mass shooters come in because if you think about it, in some ways, this is how they're getting finally heard. This is some attention, right? You can imagine a loner kid who, who gets picked on and, and ignored and no one cares about how he feels. Well, guess what we're talking about? Him. We're talking about him now, mm -hmm. but he has to hurt people to do so. And, and I, I really do believe it's less about the homicide and more about the suicide, right? The homicide part is to be hurt, but the suicide part is ultimately what drives for the homicide to even happen. Most, most young men would just take the gun to themselves and end it, right? But yeah. There, there are going to be those outliers who take that gun and hurt other people because they're so they're so angry and so much in pain that they and they've come to that point, but they no longer care about their lives, right? To go and, and walk around and start shooting people, you really have to not care whether you live or die. Um, and, and one one last thing, we don't talk about gang violence, but in many ways. This is the mindset and the feelings when it comes to people who are involved in gangs. You know, to be extremely violent and be reckless against someone who you know may be armed as well, 
um, and, and involve yourself, you, you have to not care. And, and a lot of times they say, I don't, I don't give a fuck about my life. I, I don't care. They understand that their life is going to be short behaving that the way they behave and they yeah. just don't care. They're, they're actually rather suicidal than anything else. We just don't see it that way. Yeah. And the, the point really resonated when I read it that second time um, or, and, and I'm hearing it from you because I don't know if, do you, are you familiar with Larry Sharp? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm speaking to him uh, later this week. And so in, in kind of looking into more of the things he said, he was, he happened to be on Joe Rogan four years ago. And that's the first time I kind of had heard it referred to that way as a public suicide. And so to, to see like multiple people kind of coming to that conclusion, it makes me think more deeply about it than I had before. I actually never heard him say that, but yeah, that, you know, this is, like I said, this is something where, you know, being interested in psychology and, and behavior of people, I'm thinking to myself, to be suicidal, you no longer care whether you live or die. Mm -hmm. So we all recognize to run around with a gun and know that police exist and they have guns and they might have bigger guns than you. Um, and to be completely open and reckless and, you, you know, it's not like a, uh, a, a murder of passion or right. something like that. This is, this is a very outwardly reckless, um, you know, balls out trying to, to kill people because you no longer care. You no longer care and you have a level of anger that you want to express for whatever reason. Uh, and it could be completely irrational, but, you know, they're in an irrational mindset and they no longer care what happens to them. So. I think it's more suicidal than homicidal. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know we have a few minutes left. Um, the other thing I was kind of thinking about as you're talking to this is um, adulting, like the concept of adulting. Um, <laughs> I don't know if, you know, if you know, if you, you kind of, sometimes I feel like I'm still 12 years old in my head. Like, um, yeah. you know, that must come into play because you have this person who's 18, his next step is going to college. He's had no guidance. He doesn't know how to be an adult and feels a tremendous amounts of pressure because it is pressure. Yeah, no, it definitely is pressure to, to it's almost like to, to start a job without any experience, yet right. people expect you to perform. Um, you know, that's what it's like for 18 year olds to become a man and all of a sudden live this long life of being somewhat prosperous. Um, so it's, it's a daunting task. Uh, for for any young man to go through, even if they have guidance, it's it's challenging enough. But not without the guidance, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. I want to close with you know we've talked about a lot of the problems and and in lieu of suddenly rejoining families together and having that, what can be done incrementally um, to come to a solution? Do you think um, incrementally? Well, I, I kind of see like the solution has to come from the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when people reach a certain age, it's very difficult to get them to change how they, how they view certain things. That's normal. I think the change has to come from uh, the next generation, hopefully from the parents who say, I can't change my circumstance, but I can tell my kids or at least point my kids in a certain direction uh, to not repeat what I did. You know, that's the circumstance for me. I don't want my son to repeat what I did. I want to tell him how this was the wrong way of going about it. Um, even though I don't regret it, this is the wrong way of going about it. And I want better for him. So I think parents need to recognize that and, and teach their kids. Um, or if they don't have kids yet, 
behave in a way that is of a, of a proper family planning. So when their kids are old enough to see it, they'll mimic it. And you won't have to reiterate it so much because it'll be just natural to them. Um, and I, I think for young men, they're, you know, especially for single mothers, because I've had people ask me this, um, single mothers really need to get their, their boys around a, 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 a male figure, a positive male figure, get them involved in something. You know, at least my mother tried to get me in sports. She got me into baseball. Um, get them into sports. That's perfectly fine. Get them into something. Get them around other, other men, right? Not just kids their age, but get them around older men, around some sort of leadership. Um, get them around men who they can, they can somewhat mimic and understand. Um, you know, there's, there's programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. You know, I was in that for a very little uh, a short period of time, even though I didn't get a big brother. But those programs exist in, in, throughout the country. Try that, get them in that. Find someone who is older than them that they can st start to look up towards and, and, and have some sort of influence and have that, uh, that male figure that they can, they can bond with because that's really important for young men. Yeah, I agree. Um, so where can people follow you? Um, where can they buy your book? And I know you're, you're working on another one as well. So <laughs> just walk us through that one. Yeah, the, the second book is, is uh, a work in progress. It's, I've been distracted with other things, so it's taken a while. But um, <laughs> people can uh, buy the first book, Black Victim, the Black Victor, on wrongspeak.net. You can purchase it on there. Um, you can purchase it on Amazon. Uh, the ebook and the paperback. Uh, the paperback is also on barcenoble.com. Um, and they can buy can a signed version, yeah? Yeah, you, on yeah. wrongspeak.net, you can buy a signed version. Yeah. Um, as far as where to follow me on all the main uh, social media platforms, but um, I'm very active on Twitter, so at wrong underscore speak. Um, same handle for Instagram, Facebook, it's wrongspeakadam. Uh, you can find me on there. Um, and I, I just try to be as active as possible. Um, if anybody ever wants to write anything for WrongSpeak, um, go to wrongspeak.net, you know, fill out the form and, and pitch me your idea. And, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, um, I'm so glad to have this conversation. It's actually a topic that I've wanted to talk to someone about for a long time, but just didn't know who. And then, you know, Destiny put someone retweeting you. <laughs> On my, yeah. on my page. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to have the, the conversation with you. Um, so thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really do appreciate it.